Well, you've safely arrived at week 30 of our adventure through the Bible this year as part of the Route 66 campaign with Grace Church of Glendora. We're wrapping up the wisdom literature. We're going to be finishing the book of Proverbs. We're going to read the entire book of Ecclesiastes and the Song of Songs and be starting in the Prophets. So this week, we're going to try to orient ourselves to some basic interpretive principles of how to understand two of the more difficult books in the Bible, the books of Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs, two very different books, two different sets of of interpretive principles that we're going to need to take a look at, yet both are still part of this larger body of literature called the wisdom books. So let's start our discussion with the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a monologue. And it is a monologue by someone who's called the teacher or the kolahet, the assembler in Hebrew. And what he's trying to do is come to terms with the vanity or the futility or the meaninglessness of the world. And we're going to hear this term, different translations translate it differently. But the NIV, for example, translates it meaningless, that the world is meaningless. Older translations use the word vanity. This term is used 37 times in the book. And it means literally in Hebrew that something is a vapor or a breath or a wisp of the air. It's the same term that's used in other parts of the wisdom literature, such as Proverbs 31.30, Psalm 39.5. But the question is, is what does it mean for the teacher, the the man who's giving the monologue, what does he mean by using this word vanity or meaninglessness or vapor? And it has puzzled Christians for centuries. It is not easy to understand, especially in some places that seem to contradict other parts of the Bible. This is why it is very important when you read the book of Ecclesiastes not to take verses out of context. The book of Ecclesiastes must be interpreted as a whole. You have to understand the big picture message of the whole book so that you don't just lift out verses out of context and say that the world is meaningless. That statement has to be put in the broader context of what the author or the teacher of wisdom meant. So we want to try to hit some of the major principles that will help us understand and interpret Ecclesiastes properly. What we want to focus on is the four kind of big picture themes that dominate the book of Ecclesiastes. The most foundational is that God is the creator. He is the one from whom all life comes as a gift. Secondly, God's ways are not always understandable to us, his creations. We don't always see behind the scenes. We can't always peel the curtain back and see what's going on for God in his wisdom and how he's ordered the universe. From our limited human perspective, some things are just not understandable. Third, on the human side, whatever is done, quote unquote, under the sun, in other words, in the world around us, doesn't always add up to the way that we think things should be. The way that things are doesn't always match the way that the world 
should be from our perspective, the way that we think things ought to be. And isn't that true in our day and age? So many times we go through our experiences in our lives and we think that's not fair or that's unjust. And the book of Ecclesiastes says, you're right. On, from a human perspective, things don't seem to be the way that they ought to be. And the fourth kind of big picture truth that we need to understand about Ecclesiastes is that death is the great equalizer. Death happens to everyone. No matter whether you're righteous or unrighteous, death will find you. And at the heart of the hope of the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes is the hope of resurrection from the dead. And that should be our hope as well. So even though this life is fleeting and even though death is marching toward us, And even though everything seems vain and fleeting, we know that God is the creator. He's in control. We can't always see his purposes, but we know that we can trust him. It paints a picture of the world of what it would be like if God did not play a role in our lives. It would seem like everything was a vapor and meaningless. If God did not play a direct intervening role in our lives, if there was no life after death, the book of Ecclesiastes presents a brilliant, artful argument painting a very accurate picture of what life would be life. It would of what life would be like. It would seem hopeless. It would seem like, what is the point? I might as well just go out and pursue pleasure. It would be fatalistic and discouraging. At the end of the day, what we need to understand about the book of Ecclesiastes is that it is an expression of speculative wisdom. It's not so much trying to give us solid answers about how to live our lives as God's covenant people. That was more in the book of Proverbs. Rather, Ecclesiastes is there to remind its readers of the hard questions that we need to look to God as being the one who provides the ultimate answers and that we can't look at life just on the surface of what seems to be going on around us. We need to remember that God is in charge and he's working to orchestrate things behind the scene. There's not a lot of comfort from the teacher's wisdom here in the book of Ecclesiastes, but it is an important book in the canon of the Bible. From our perspective as Christian believers, as New Covenant believers, we read the book of Ecclesiastes from the perspective of seeing the joyous hope of the resurrection, the certainty of divine future judgment that will put the world right. We know death has been conquered. The teacher of wisdom in the book of Ecclesiastes, he didn't know for sure that that resurrection was going to happen. But we see it through the resurrection of Jesus. We know what God is capable of. And that provides the foundation of our own hope that we will one day have eternal life with God. And also the hope that God will someday judge the wicked. The things that bother us now in this world will someday be put in the right order. God will punish the guilty and protect the innocent. Now let's talk about the Song of Songs, also called the Song of Solomon. 
Now Solomon isn't explicitly mentioned as the author of the Song of Songs, but because of Solomon's association with wisdom and the fact that he was a king in Israel and the person named in the Song of Songs is a king with great wealth, so it's often assumed that Solomon is the man in the story and cast in that role. Basically, the Song of Songs is a long love song. It's a ballad about human romance, and it's written in an ancient Near Eastern style of lyrical poetry, but it is part of the wisdom literature because it deals explicitly with the idea of making a wise choice in marriage and being faithful to your spouse. It's helpful to read the Song of Songs within the larger context of Genesis 1 and 2. This is where we have the description of the creation of the first two humans, the man and the woman, and that God has created them for each other. God's design is that the man and woman are both part of God's good creation and they are created to help each other. The woman is someone who is there as more than just the English word helper. She is an his azare. She is like a warrior with Adam and together they are to multiply and fill the earth. Unfortunately, as with everything else, the fall has corrupted that dimension of our humanity. Instead of marriage being a constant source of joy and blessing, as God intended, all sorts of lusts and exploitation and distortion have come in to corrupt the marriage relationship. I mean, we don't even need to hardly pause and think about that. The examples of that are abundant in our culture. But Song of Songs shows us that true love and sexual attraction can be celebrated to God's glory. That was part of God's original design. And we, as God's covenant people, when God saves us, when his Holy Spirit comes in and dwells in us, part of what we are doing is, is reversing the effects of the curse in our life and trying to get back to Eden in a way, to live out our marriage relationship in a way that glorifies God by loving each other selflessly and unconditionally. The book of Song of Songs, in a way, that's how it's functioning in Scripture. That's why it's there, is to paint us a picture of what's possible even after the fall, even in spite of our problems with sin and how it can come in and destroy the marriage relationship, what's possible with God's people when they obey him and obey his commands about marriage and how they can be wonderfully and joyfully fulfilled in their marriage. Now, to be sure, this song has a long history of odd interpretations, a lot of allegorizing, some people who are uncomfortable with the more plain meaning of the text and, and the amount of kind of descriptions of nakedness and sex that are in this book have tried to allegorize it away. And the approach that I'm taking here is that this is a picture of an actual couple. It centers on human love. It's, a, it's about love between a literal man and a literal woman celebrating that love and their attraction for each other. In other words, it's not an allegory. 
as New Covenant Christians, we know that our culture encourages people to fulfill themselves with whatever their sexual desires are. That it is about finding our personal happiness. And sometimes we even try to spiritualize this by saying, well, God wouldn't give me these desires if he didn't want me to act on them. What we have in the book of Song of Songs is kind of a living out of the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs gave us an abundance of information about how to act and how to behave and how to choose a good mate. And then the Song of Songs shows us in vivid detail at times of what the payoff can be when we choose a godly mate. The Song of Songs shows us how one person can respond faithfully to the attractiveness of another person and fulfill the needs of each other. In our modern world, romance is thought as something that precedes marriage. But in this song, romance is something that actually is part of the marriage. And may that be so among us as God's covenant people. Now, critical to a good reading of the Song of Songs is to recognize that basically there's three voices in this song or in this poem. There's the woman who really plays the leading role throughout most of the song. There's the man who is celebrating the beauty of and and his love for the woman. And then the woman's companions who are called the daughters of Jerusalem. And the NIV calls uh, the, the man the lover, he calls the woman the beloved, and the friends are the woman's companions. These aren't in the original text, they might be in your translation, but they're basically an attempt by the translators to help you see who's talking and when there's a change of speaker. This kind of helps us so we don't get lost. And there's some other more minor characters, shepherds and watchmen and the women's brothers, but these are all characters and and roles that are being played throughout the song to give us the overall message. Well, that's a wrap on Life Uncensored. So make sure you pick up the next edition of the Route 66 Study Companion this week as we prepare to enter the realm of prophecy. We'll be getting a little sneak peek this week. We're just going to be touching on the first four chapters of Isaiah But then we'll really get into the thick of it next week. Thanks for joining me. I'm glad that we're on this journey together. I can't believe we're over halfway. And as we get into the prophets, we'll be in the home stretch of the Old Testament. It's just going to keep getting better from here. So I hope you're enjoying the journey. And I look forward to continuing it with you next week. We'll see you then. And God bless.